1 John chapter 3, and we'll be in verses 4 through 10. It'll take us, I believe, a couple Sundays to get through verses 4 through 10. Our, our focus today is going to land really in verses 4, 5, and 6. But overall, in verses 4 through 10, we're going to consider the idea of spiritual discernment and spiritual deception. And the passage before us today and next week, as we keep saying as we study John's letter here, this passage is very helpful for us today. It's important and timely because we need to be spiritually discerning. We need to discern against spiritual deceivers. You'll recall that John's focus, um, kind of going back to the end of chapter 2, has been on the return of Christ, when Christ appears. And he doesn't really deviate very far from that because he writes in these verses of the first coming of Christ, but in Christ's first coming there were works in destroying the power of the devil that will ultimately see come to their fulfillment, their completion when Christ comes again. So we're still in that family of ideas, the, the appearance, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think of the Christian faith in light of Christ's imminent return, we ought to understand the importance that we are not deceived by spiritual frauds because those who, those who deceive with the truth, those who deceive in their profession of faith, we need to stand firmly against not only to, to reject their teaching, but in order to be able to give them the gospel because a spiritual fraud is still not beyond the reach of the Lord. So, Again, spiritual discernment and, and spiritual deception, but really verses 4 through 6 are almost just an introduction to, to the idea that we'll see further on into the text. So let's read 1 John 3, verses 4 through 10, and I'll ask you if you're able to please join me standing for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is God's Word. It's inerrant and infallible and inspired. This is Holy Scripture breathed out by the Spirit of God. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and may he write it upon our hearts so that we will be sanctified and conformed to the image of Christ. You may be seated. Join with me now, if you will. Let's go to the Lord and ask his help and his blessing as we study his word. Father, we come and we give you honor and glory and praise 
You are holy, holy, holy. The creator and sustainer of all things. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the Lord of all who will and is crowned with the most glorious of crowns. Got to pray as we consider your word that before we even come to this important truth that we would acknowledge your greatness, your majesty, your glory, your holiness, and in light of all that, that we would understand our sinfulness and our great need for a Savior, that we would understand that even once redeemed, that we need your Holy Spirit to work in us to conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, I pray that we would see Christ, the King of kings, high and exalted, ruling and reigning, King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, I pray and I ask that by your powerful working through your Holy Spirit that you would take your word, plant it within our hearts, and cause it to bear fruit. God, for we are but sinful humans who remain in this fleshly body that will strive and labor and work against the work of sanctification. But Lord, you are mighty, and you're able to accomplish all that you intend to accomplish in your saints. So I pray that today as we study your word that you would do a portion of that work. Lord, you must do all of the work today. We know that we will not be perfectly sanctified just from one visit, one study of your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would help us. pray that your spirit would empower the words that are spoken to make the truth clear. pray that your spirit would apply the truth in our hearts. pray, Lord, that we would be humble, that we would be eager to receive your word that we'd have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, I pray in all things that you would receive all the honor and all the praise and all the glory. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Would you teach us through your word? Would you correct us, reprove us, rebuke us, instruct us through your word? Lord, I thank you for your great patience. We all must understand that we are sinful beings, Lord, and, and that we are certainly not conformed to Christ as we should yet be. But I pray to the praise of your glory that you would sanctify us by the truth today. Lord, help us to be a people separated out from the world set apart as your possession for your glory because of the redeeming work of Christ. Make us like our Savior through your word and for your glory. I ask in Christ's name, amen. So as we've seen throughout John's epistle, John always seems to get directly to the heart of the matter. He does not mince words. He doesn't hold back. He 
clearly distinguishes things that would make modern-day evangelicals very hesitant and, and very squeamish. In our day, it's not popular to make a stand against sin. If you make a stand against sin like John does here, you're going to be called judgmental. The world is going to call you harsh and judgmental. And sadly, even some in the church will take clear truths of the Scripture. And when you hold to them and teach them and proclaim them, you will be told, well, judge not lest ye be judged, which is a perversion, an utter perversion of Scripture. John does not stop at writing just what would be called judgmental today because he also calls for the practice of righteousness. So, so you're going to be called judgmental because you call sin what it is, and then you hold to this truth that a saint of Christ will be righteous, will be pure, will be holy, just as the Lord is holy. And so now not only are you judgmental, but you're also legalistic because you hold to the truths of Scripture. John describes this work of Christ in a graphic and visible way. He says, Christ comes to destroy the works of the devil. So we have to ask ourselves, are the works of the, the devil destroyed in such a way that we don't live in righteousness? As the Apostle Paul would say, may it never be. You practice righteousness because Christ completed a work on the cross to destroy the power of the devil and to free you from your enslavement to his evil ways. This text, if we apply it as written, which is our duty, which is our goal, and which should be our joy, dear friends, it's going to leave you on unpopular ground. But leaving you on unpopular ground, it will also leave you on solid ground, the solid ground of the truth. And it will take you and carry you and point you to the solid rock, Jesus Christ himself. Now, again, we're, we're looking really specifically at verses 4 through 6 today, and, and this just lays the groundwork for the idea of our fight against spiritual deception and for how we practice this, this idea of being spiritually discerning so that we're not deceived. What we need to see beginning in these verses today are the basics of sin and salvation. What is sin? What does it mean to practice sin? And what is accomplished in salvation? What did Christ do? Why did he come? And what is the extent of his saving work? John makes it clear. Christ came to take away our sins. And he did this by destroying the power of the devil while he was at the cross and when he was raised from the grave. We need to make a clear distinction as saints and as a church, between what it looks like to practice sin and what it looks like to be a saint who battles against the flesh. And Scripture gives us enough that we can make this clear distinction if we're willing to see the truth as it is written. This obedience to which we are called is the outworking of a transformed life in Christ. We, we don't practice righteousness, as we saw in Romans chapter 3 in our Bible study, we don't practice righteousness to merit or to earn God's favor or to merit righteousness. It's the outworking of a heart that is transformed by Christ and the one who loves him and is devoted to him as your Savior. So with that as the backdrop, we need to zone in on, on this text. What 
We need to see both this morning and Lord willing next week is that believers must pursue spiritual discernment. Okay, that is important that we pursue the spiritual discernment that clearly distinguishes between righteous practice of those in Christ and the sinful practice of those who are children of the devil. We need to be clear. Okay, we need to clearly separate the practice of righteousness and the practice of sin, and that takes spiritual discernment. So today, really just two headings that will follow. We're going to see sin defined and maybe a couple other definitions under that heading, and then we're going to see our salvation described. Sin defined, 1 John 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So three terms, right, that you can see in there, I think that become uh, very obvious that we need to understand. Sin, lawlessness, and practice. John joins sin and lawlessness together. Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. But we must understand that it's not just those terms we need to see, but we need to understand what is the practice of sin. What does that mean? What does that look like in a life? So firstly, the idea of sin Sin is the Greek word hamartia. You may have heard of the, the study harmoniology. It's the study of the biblical doctrine of sin. And that is the word where we get the English word sin. It means to miss the mark, yes. But it also means, and this is important, it also means to fail to hit the mark. Okay, so hold those two definitions. To miss the mark. And to fail to hit the mark because sin happens both by commission and by omission. By going out and actively breaking God's commands, doing what he tells you not to do. That is a sin of commission. But also sin happens when you do not do what the Lord plainly commands. If you think about archery, if you think about aiming at a target, you're always shooting an arrow. You either hit the target or you miss. You either fail to hit the target, or you hit the target. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. You know the right thing to do, and you fail to do it. It is sin. It doesn't just mean if you break God's commands, it's sin, but if you fail to do what he has called you to do, that is sinful. Thayer's Greek Dictionary defines sin as that which misses the mark in thought, in feeling, or in speech, and in action. Thought or feeling, in speech, in action. It's this broad category of anything that you do in, in word or thought or deed that misses the mark, that fails to keep any of God's commands and laws. Let me tell you, friends, for us as believers, this clear de description of and definition of sin is important because it helps us in our striving to be like Christ. Because you lose that crutch uh, of claiming ignorance or, or claiming, well, I didn't do this that the Lord told me not to do, but yes, you did fail to love your neighbor as yourself. That is sin. So we must clearly define what sin is as the Lord, as Holy Scripture defines it. Second term, lawlessness. 
Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. This is the Greek word anomia. The, the A at the start of that means anti. Namia, namos means law. The word means anti-law. Maybe you've heard of an antinomian, the one who lives against, who rejects the practice and the keeping of God's law. So in some ways, this is similar to sin. It's something that does not accord with what is commanded. It is iniquity. It is illegal action in regards to God's law. So, so not illegal as in against the laws of men, though breaking the laws of men at times can be sinful. It, it is an action that breaks God's law, that goes against God's revealed truth. We know Jesus came to save us from our sins, but he also came to redeem us from every lawless deed, Titus 2.14. He came to give himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. So he redeems us from sin, he redeems us from lawlessness. So John then connects these two terms. Sin is lawlessness. And we can safely say that lawlessness is sin. But then there's the third term. And this is what is important for us as believers, because you are still going to sin. As as a redeemed saint in Christ, you should be being conformed to Christ. You should sin less today than you did last year. As one who's walked with the Lord for 30 years, you should sin much less than you did in that first year of your walk with Christ. But you're still going to battle sin. You're still going to fight against it. And so that's where John brings us to this term, practice. I'll give you one more Greek word, and this is, this is where studying through the words and their uses in Scripture will really help us understand what John is getting at. It's the word poieo. It really means to do or to make. So, so anyone who does sin, anyone who makes sin is not in Christ, but that's where we need to, to kind of see how this term is used in Scripture to understand really what John is getting at. So a couple examples, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 25. Really, this term really speaks to staying in a place or tearing in a place practice. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and a night and a day I have spent in the deep. That word spent is poieo, the word that John is translated in 1 John 3 as practice. Three nights I have spent, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. James 4.13, James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a place and spend a year there and we'll engage in business and we'll make a profit. Spend is poieo. It's the idea of going and doing something but remaining in that place while you're doing or engaging in that thing. So the idea is doing or, some, doing or staying somewhere for an amount of time. It's a habit. It's an unbroken pattern. That's what John has in mind here when he says everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. It's that remaining in the unbroken pattern and habit of sin. To fight against this sin, you must be 
learning, you must learn and be learning God's standard and His law because you can't fight against the, the, the sin when you don't know God's direct commands, right? So to, to avoid the practice and, and the habit of sin, you must know God's standard. You must be learning and increasing in your knowledge of His law. So we have defined really three things. I said sin defined, but it's sin and lawlessness and practice defined. But do you see the point John is making? What he is is driving us to is the ongoing remaining in the practice and committing of sin. It's the habit of being in unrepentant sin. So This is not the saint who is walking with Christ and being conformed to Christ and yet falls back into temptation. This is not a person who maybe has a quick temper, but the Lord is growing in patience, and yet in a moment of weakness, they lash out in anger and they don't show the patience that is a clear fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's not what John is describing. It's one who remains in that sin. You think about Someone, a a young man perhaps who struggles with the sin of pride and arrogance. Yet the Lord is humbling that man and growing him and conforming him to Christ. And yet in a moment of weakness and a moment of letting his guard down, he speaks a word of arrogance. That's not the practice of sin. He is practicing humility but falling into temptation as Satan attacks The question then we need to kind of consider here is how often... Do you fail to hit the mark? Not just how often do you do something and miss the mark when you're doing it, but how often do you fail to hit the mark? Think about your, your practice if, if you're married as a spouse. How often, not, not only do you sin against your spouse, but how often do you fail husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church? The church? How often do you wives fail to Submit yourselves to your husband as the church submits to Christ. As a parent, how often do you fail to practically live out your calling to bring up your children in the fear and instruction and admonition of the Lord? Not just how many times do you lose your cool with your child, but how often do you fail to actively show them the example of Christ? And we could go on and on there. But we need to see this clear dividing line. We are all continuing to be sanctified. We're all continuing and and called to make progress. You're not called to be perfect. You will not be perfected until you go to glory to be with the Lord. Think back to 1 John 1, verses 8 8 through 10. John said, if you claim to have no sin, you're lying, you're deceiving yourself, and the truth is not in you. If, if you say that you've not sinned, you're not practicing the truth. Rather, you acknowledge that sin, you confess that sin, and then you trust and believe that the Lord is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness because of the work of Christ. You must know, you must acknowledge, you must understand that. But then you need to see that everyone who practices sin practices lawlessness. And the one who abides in Christ does not practice sin. If you abide in Christ, if your life is in Him, you do not make it a practice of your life to abide and remain in lawlessness. Yes, you will sin. 
But when you sin, you confess your sin and you throw yourself upon the grace of the Lord. You repent and you turn from your sin. So we have to understand the definition and the description of sin and lawlessness and practice. We could continue on here, but I think the most helpful thing to do is to go back into the next verses and also see our salvation described. So sin described, or, or, or sin defined in verse 4, and then salvation described in 5 and 6. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Our salvation described starts with a picture of the author of our salvation. You notice John says here, you know this about Christ. This is a known, established fact. This is the reason that Christ came and you know that this was his purpose. You know that he was incarnated as the Son of God in human flesh so that he could take away sins and so that you could see him and so that you could have life in him. So that you can be raised to newness of life and not walk in your former ways of sin. Consider what John says. You know that he appeared. He was manifest to us. He was revealed to us. Christ existed in eternity past. That's what John's gospel begins with. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things that were created came into being through Him. And without Him, nothing was created. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ exists in eternity past with the Father in perfection and in glory and in perfect communion. Yet, dear friends, that glorious Christ, that glorious communion he experienced with the Spirit and the Father, Jesus willingly laid that aside. Now, he never ceased to exist as God, but in his human flesh, in a way that we'll never be able to perfectly understand, he laid aside those privileges of deity and came to his very creation as a creature, experienced the weakness of our flesh, experienced the attacks of Satan in temptation, Satan soliciting Jesus to sin, which of course he could not do because he was God. Think about the fondest memories of your life, those times in life where, where everything w was just going well. You, were, you had those times of joy and peace and rest, and, and in those moments, I think we would all agree that we kind of will just stop sometimes and think, man, I would love to just stay in this moment, in this moment of joy. Perhaps it's a moment of worship, a gathering with the church where you're just experiencing the work of God's Spirit and worship and, and seeing His glory displayed, and you just think, I just want to stay here. You know, like, like Peter said at the Transfiguration, Lord, it's good that we're here. And, and you have that same mindset, it's good that I'm here. I want to stay and remain. Dear friend, do you realize that Christ had that exact experience? eternally existing in the past with the Father, 
with the Spirit in perfect fellowship and communion and glory. And yet, because He loves you, because He submitted Himself to the plan of the Father, to the plan of the Godhead, He laid aside all of that, and He appeared. He came to His creation. One thing that continues to strike me, I think especially as we study the the book Knowing Christ, is just to see this humility of Jesus in coming to his creation and understanding, friends, that no hardship that we ever experience could ever be too low for us. Nothing we ever experience could ever match the humiliation of Christ, even if he didn't come to die, even if he just came to live a human life. That ultimate humility should mark us, and it should move us, and we should be willing to walk through whatever the Lord calls us for the glory of His name and the sanctification of our souls. So you know that He appeared in order to take away sins. He appeared for this purpose. This was His duty. This was, Jesus would say, His food to do the will of my Father who sent me. This was his prize. This was his work. Think about what John the Baptist said in John 1.29. When John the Baptist had this ministry, when he was baptizing, multitudes of people were coming to him to be baptized and to hear his message of the Christ. And he looks up one day, he sees Jesus walking across the water, and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To take away means to take upon oneself and to carry what has been raised or what has been taken. So John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He appeared to take away sins. This is what Christ has done. He has lifted the burden of your sin. He has placed it upon his own shoulders at the cross and then he has carried it away. He has borne the wrath due your sin. That's what Paul wrote about in Colossians 2. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. He has forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. This was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Taking it out of the way is the exact same phrase from 1 John 3, the exact same phrase that John the Baptist used in John 1.29. He's taken the sins of the world because the debt of that sin was nailed to him upon the cross. He paid the full price. He bore the full burden, that heavy, enormous weight, for every sin of every sheep of the great chief shepherd. He appeared to take away sins. Dear friends, when you preach Christ to a lost person, especially when you preach Christ to a lost person or even to a saint who has experienced all kinds of weight of sin They've engaged in all kinds of horrible, sinful actions. Let me encourage you to point them to this purpose of Christ. He came to take away your sins. It's what his purpose was. 
Dear friends, how encouraging you can be to a lost person or to a saint who's weighed down by guilt by reminding them, yes, you did sin greatly. Yes, you ought to confess and repent and believe and turn, but he came to take away that sin. There's no sin too great. There's no sin too ugly. He came and bore all of its wrath. So not only was that his purpose, dear friend, remember Christ was utterly, completely successful because he cried out on the cross, what it is finished. The work is done. So may we consider the kindness and the mercies of our Savior that he came and he lifted the burden of our sins and placed it upon himself. But then you think about that and consider Romans chapter 5. Think about what Paul writes in verses 6 through 8. While we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While you were a sinner, while you were helpless, while you were an enemy, while you were making war against him, Paul said, you know, maybe for a good man someone would even dare to die. But you and I, we were not good people. We're evil, vile, wicked sinners. Yet at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What's the extent of the price that Christ paid? Think about what we defined earlier, sin and lawlessness. Every sin and every lawless deed had to be paid for and accounted for. God's law is very clear. Jesus gave us even more clarity in his Sermon on the Mount as to the, the present reality of the law of God. For example, he said, yeah, the law says that you shall not commit murder. But even if you hate your brother, and, and especially if you act upon that hatred, you are guilty of breaking the law. You're guilty of murder. If you Look with lust at another man or woman. You are as guilty as having committed the act of adultery. Think about this. Perhaps you're not full of hate. Perhaps you, by God's grace, do not struggle with the sin of lust. In Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus pointedly said, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now think about that. Come back to the definition of sin. It's missing the mark or it's failing to hit the mark. So now think about this command of Christ. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You say, well, I don't hate my enemies. Yeah, but Christ said to love them. Do you fail to hit the mark? I don't hate those who persecute me. Yes, but do you pray for the salvation of their souls? Because sin is failing to hit the mark. Evaluate and examine yourself in light of the truth of what sin really is and how Christ gives these full, broad commands. Dear ones, we should think about all those sins, 
all those times that you failed to hit the mark, all those times that you've missed the mark, realize that Christ paid for each of those sins. If you are his, all of those sins had to be paid for. So we need to think often of the kindness and the grace of our Savior. And we need to realize that spiritual growth cannot and does not happen apart from considering and keeping all of God's commands. We must know and hit the mark. Spiritual growth happens when you know the commands of the Lord and you strive to hit the mark. Then we kind of turn the corner a little bit in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. How does he do that? Read the rest of verse 5. And in him there is no sin. Perfect, spotless, righteous, blameless, unblemished. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, You were not redeemed by perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life. You were redeemed rather with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Think about the Apostle Paul when he was there with the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. He said, you need to shepherd the flock of God, and you are shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. How did he purchase the church with his blood? Because he was spotless, blameless, and perfect in every way. The price of your sin... Dear friend, hear this, the price of your sin, the price of my sin, was the precious blood of Christ. Then feel that weight, and then rejoice in the fact that he was up to the task. He was able to complete the work. The one in whom there was no sin, willingly was sent to a cross, nailed hands and feet after being beaten and bloodied and, and tortured in, in almost every horrible way imaginable. And he went and he hung on that cross and, and all that physical torment, yes, it was there, but then he bore the weight of his father's wrath because his blood was pure, because he was a spotless unblemished sacrifice. Dear friend, what a love. What a Savior. What a cost. We rejoice because we stand forgiven at the cross. Do we realize, considering that great cost of salvation, that this work of God produces fruit in our lives as well. We don't just look at the cross and stand there almost paralyzed, glorying in the cross, though, yes, we do. But that work of God produces change in our lives. Verse 6, no one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. When you are alive in Christ, when you are abiding in Him, the practice of your life is not sin, period. When you're abiding in Him, you do not practice sin. That's one important, I think, interpretive thing that we do as we 
read through from verse 4 to verse 6 is this idea that no one abides in him sins. It's not that you never commit sin, but it's that idea of practice that we draw back from verse 4. One definition of abides is to continually be present with something or someone. To abide in Christ then is to continually be present with him, to remain with him, to think often of his person and his work and for him to continually be with you. And dear friend, when you sin, you then therefore are not abiding in Christ because he will not be joined to the vileness of your sin. Does that mean sin after salvation breaks the work of Christ? Of course not. But you are not actively abiding in the vine as a branch that bears good fruit when you sin because he will not be tainted with your sin. Dear friend, we must find our life sustainment in Him. It's finding that life in Him that gives us the power to resist temptation. So what does it mean to abide? It means to remain, to, to think, to consider and to dwell upon the person and work and commands of Christ. Abiding with Him is to have your home with Him. It is your joy and your duty and your goal and your work to please Him and to be found pleasing by Him. If you abide in Christ and your life is with Him, very simply, you don't love the sins that He died for. You don't love that which hung Christ on the cross. You don't even desire it. You don't say, oh, I'm going to get as close to this sin as I can, but then try to flee in the moment of temptation. No, that sin is reviling to you. You hate it. You flee from it. You don't run to the edge of temptation. Practically speaking, to abide in Christ is when Christ and His glory are the primary desires of your heart and your mind. Now, you can sugarcoat that. You can make excuses for that. You can try to weasel your way around that and say, yeah, well, I'm dabbling in all these sins, but my desire is for Christ. No, you know whether or not your desire is for Christ, and you can lie to all of us. You can lie to anyone, your parents, your friends, your pastors, your teachers, you can lie to anybody and you might convince them, but the Lord knows your heart and he sees if your desire is for your sin or if your desire is for his glory. We understand Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20 says, Indeed, there's not one righteous man on the earth who continually does good and never sins. Yes, we agree. We submit to that. But the desire of your heart and the practice of your life must be to strive toward righteousness. John wraps that statement up. No one who abides in him sins, and no one who sins has seen him or knows him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. No one who practices sin has seen or knows Christ. Because see him, to know him, is to have fellowship and communion with him. 
The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 said, What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? Do you realize that light always overpowers darkness? At every turn, unless darkness somehow covers up the light, light always overpowers darkness. Darkness really is just the absence of light. Darkness is not anything of itself except for the absence of light. And if you are in Christ, His light is seen in and through you. His light overwhelms the darkness in you. Signs of spiritual life, signs of spiritual maturity and spiritual growth really just means that you're showing more and more of Christ than you previously did. Whatever time bound you want to put on that, a day, a week, a month, a year, a decade, or so on, what it means to have life in Christ is that today you look more like Him. His light shines more through you than it did previously. And how does that work? Because we see Him, because we know Him. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. Glory of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. When Jesus was on the earth, the disciples saw Him. They beheld His glory. They knew that He was full of grace and truth. And you say, well, I don't see Christ. Beloved, you have everything you need pertaining to life and godliness and the revelation of the knowledge of God contained in the pages of Holy Scripture. You don't need to see a physical Jesus because you have a sure word, a more sure word. You have all of the prophetic words made sure in the 66 books of the Bible. So if you see Him, if you know Him, you will abide in Him and you will have life in Him. The church, local and universal, should be a visible representation, a visible picture of the glory in the work of Christ. You as an individual should be a picture, a visible manifestation and revelation of the transforming power of the person and work of Christ. We must not make excuses in this. We must understand the call to personal holiness, the call to righteousness, the call not to practice sin. We must walk and live in such a way as to honor this Savior who gave His life, who shed His blood on our behalf. And as I said, we'll finish this text, Lord willing, next week. But I want to kind of just shift our eyes forward for a moment and draw out a conclusion. And how does this fit in with the rest of the text? Considering spiritual discernment and spiritual deception, and to ever begin working in that realm, you must know what sin is, and you must know what salvation is. Who accomplished it? The extent of that accomplishment, and how that accomplishment applies to you today. To apply discernment, you must understand that the practice of sin is completely opposed to the battle of sin that you see in a saint. We must understand that we walk in this great salvation because Christ won it. Christ 
paid the price for the forgiveness of your sins, and now you are alive in him, a new creature. The old things have passed away, and new things have come. We must understand the work of salvation. We must understand that Christ came to lift the burden of your sin, to break the shackles of your slavery to Satan, the father of all evil. He frees us from its power. And the key to this life and godliness is that you must see and know Christ. You must see his person, you must see his work, and you must know him. You must have fellowship with him. You must abide in him. So I'll close with this. Do you know this Savior? If you know this Savior, do you take your mind often to Christ's cross? Do you consider the work that he completed so that you could be freed from the power of sin? Does your life show that you know him? If somebody observed a week in your life, would they not have any idea that you belong to Christ? Paul told the Colossians in Colossians 1 that they must walk in a manner worthy of their calling, pleasing the Lord in all respects. They must bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of the Lord. It's my desire as we close our time together today. I would walk in a manner worthy of our calling, pleasing the Lord in all respects, that we would know Christ, the power of his resurrection, that we'd bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God, that we would do that by the power of the Spirit to the praise of the glory of God alone. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we ask that you